Well, good morning, everybody. How is everyone doing today? You made it to church. You, uh, no car accidents with the fog, I hope. Um, everyone was, was safe on the roads this morning. Um, my name is James. I'm the Next Gen Pastor, one of the teaching pastors here at this church, and I'm so honored and privileged to be able to give the message today for us. We're continuing in a series right now called uh, Level Up, and last week, Pastor John gave a brilliant message about humility, and in order to go high, we have to go low, and it was, it was a great message. How many of you guys were here for part one? Yes, you've made it, and it is, uh, it's so good that we're going to continue this series together as we talk about how to level up, ready, with, drum roll, someone, with family. It got silent, okay. <laughs> Listen, um, we're gonna talk about family today, and um, I know that this might be an uncomfortable subject for some of us in the room, and I want to acknowledge that, um, because I don't want that to be like an elephant in the room right now. Some of us, we, we come from maybe families that are broken, and, um, and some of us come from healthy families, and some of us are not sure who our family is. Um, but I want you to know that today I believe God has something that he wants to give to each of us in this room today. Amen? Amen. Okay. So uh, recently um, I went to my favorite restaurant to eat with um, Heather, and we both were in youth ministry together, and um, we went to Buffalo Wild Wings. And, um, and yes, I eat meat. Don't judge me. And, um, <laughs> and I had my favorite meal, which was uh, bone-in Asian zing uh, wings. It's kind of spicy. It's on the, the spicier side, um, side of ranch, of course. And, and she had the buffalo chicken salad with side of ranch. And we talked about um, just youth ministry, and we talked about just some of the the funniest moments that we've had together in youth, and it was, it was a great conversation, but one of the things that um, we left kind of thinking about was, man, the youth of today are so different than the youth of when I was in youth, you know, like 10 years ago, 12 years ago, when, when she was in youth, and obviously when you guys were in youth, youth ministry and just youth in general, teenagers today are not the same youth that they were uh, yesterday. It's kind of like Bob Dylan was onto something where he said, like, the times they are are changing, right? And um, it's interesting because, you know, like her seven-year-old, she was saying, you know, she had to have the talk with her, her seven-year-old because her seven-year-old came home and said, like, what is sax, like S-A-X? And she was like, oh, shoot, we have to have that talk right now. And they had the talk, and she was seven. And I remember I didn't have the talk until I was, like, in my teen years, right? And, and even, like, you look at middle schoolers today, middle schoolers are, are thinking about colleges. High schoolers are already thinking about marriage. The youth are growing up faster because they're exposed to things so much sooner because of the infinite knowledge that is in our phones that is at our leisure of searching. And I think that um, what is powerful today that, that I, we can do, and here's the title of the message is this, is we need to reclaim the table. Reclaim the table. And I'm going to spend the next 25 minutes diving into this uh, with you guys as I hope to be able to set us up with something where I think we can all take away from, okay? Here's what I didn't want to do when I was preparing this message. I did not want to overwhelm everyone with 10 points that I might have been able to come up with, even though I just had my first son and he's not a teenager. And I was like kind of scared to talk about parenting because I was like, man, what do I have to say that you guys don't already know? You guys should be teaching this. But uh, God did give me something, and it is um, what I'm going to spend the next few minutes talking about. Um, when we think about Jesus and the life of Jesus, we oftentimes will refer to him as Messiah, as Lord, as Savior. But how many of you guys also know that Jesus was the greatest teacher who ever lived? 
In fact, in the New Testament alone, he is recorded as teacher more than 60 times in the New Testament, teacher or rabbi. And when Jesus is, is recruiting the D12, the disciples, right, he, he starts with this great passage in Mark chapter 3, verse 31, and I want to read this to you. It says this, then Jesus, oh, sorry, I'm in the wrong spot, my bad. Do not go there. That's why you don't do tablets up here and you do notes on paper. Okay, Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 18. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Everybody say, fishers of men. Very good. Then immediately they left their nets and followed him. So, Many of us have heard this, this scripture before. You've probably read this or heard it a few thousand times if you've gone to church for a long time. But let's just um, connect for a moment just on this simple thought. Jesus walks up to these fishermen that he doesn't, that they don't know each other, right? And he walks up and he says, listen, fishermen, I'm going to make you fishers of men, which is a great pun, but it was so much deeper than that. He said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to teach you to catch men, I'm the greatest teacher, and I'm going to teach you to be an excellent teacher that will then capture the hearts of men and women. I'm going to show you how to do this. And they were convinced. They literally dropped their careers. They dropped the fish in the moment, and they began to follow Jesus for the next three years in the ministry as Jesus began to preach the good news, the gospel, right, and to tell the world that the Messiah has come. He is here, and it is him. And it's so interesting when we read about this because you know, I don't know if any of us would really drop our careers in that moment. You know, we would say, oh, you're going to teach me to be a great teacher. But Jesus had something about him that humanity was missing and was looking for. And when Jesus began to teach them how to follow this, uh, this, this lifestyle, he wasn't teaching them how to do Sunday morning church. He was teaching them a new way of life, a new way of living. I mean, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and Jesus is the perfect example of how to live fully human but not sin, how to live a life of abundance without shame, without anxiety, depression, fear, isolation, darkness. Jesus is perfect theology. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the life, and he began to show his friends how to do this that we could learn how to follow this new way of life. And he did four things as he bridged families together. He did this, number one, listen to my teachings. Jesus taught them the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount. He taught them how to pray the Lord's Prayer. In Luke chapter 11, verse one, they're asking, you know, how do we pray? And he begins to teach them. This is how you should pray, our Father in heaven. Holy is your name, right? He begins to teach them the Lord's Prayer. The second thing that he did after he told them to listen to his teachings, and it's on the back of your, your bookmarks if you like filling in the blank in your, um, yeah, one of the note takers. Okay, after you listen to his teachings, number two, practice what I do. So Jesus would make them listen to his teachings and then practice those teachings. So I think it's really interesting when you look at like the first a miracle that the disciples got to be a part of was the passing out of the bread and the fish to the 5,000s, right? And I love this kind of leadership like idea that he didn't just start with like, okay, now that you've seen me cast out a demon, go and cast out a demon. He was like, no, 
I'm gonna let you start with something that like you can do that you feel comfortable with. Let's just have you pass out bread, Peter, okay? Don't cut off anyone's head, all right? Like, go and pass out this bread. And so they're passing out the bread and, and, and the fish and they're feeding of the 5,000. And then from there, you know, he begins to, after a couple of years, he, he sends them out into, you read that story where the two, the 72 go out and some of them go and they cast out demons. Some go and preach the good news. Some go into people's homes and they come back. It's that interesting story where they're like, wow, even the demons like listen to, uh, to us. And he said, you know, that interesting story where he's like, you know, don't rejoice because they obey you, but rejoice because their names are written in heaven. And what is he doing? He's teaching them how to do, he's teaching them to practice what he's, te- sorry, he's teaching them to practice the things that he taught them. There we go. Then from there, we have the third point, and the third point is this, to be with one another. Jesus taught us that it is vitally important for us to be together, okay? Why is this so important? Because I think that a lot of us, we kind of just stick within our bubbles of our homes and our favorite seat in church, and we live um, kind of life in route, and we don't ever break form, and we don't ever meet with other people. And I want you to know, in case you didn't know, there are other brothers and sisters in the family and the body of Christ. <laughs> you know, when Jesus, in, uh, on this note, as we're talking about being with one another, Jesus did something really amazing that I think we overlook a lot. And it's in the Synoptic Gospels of Luke where Jesus is, is walking in a crowd, and he sees a small man named Zacchaeus in a tree, and he says to him, he says, hey, um, I'd like to have dinner at your house tonight. Um, He says, you know, he doesn't say this, but the paraphrase is really, he's like, you know, I don't have a home, I'm homeless, but let's go into your rich house, and I'll dine with you, and, um, you know, if your house is big enough for maybe my 12 friends, is that okay if I bring 12 friends with me to have dinner at your house? First, Jesus invites himself into his house, and then he probably brought all the people that were in the crowd into this rich man's house. And, and Zacchaeus is so thrilled that Jesus wants to ha- have dinner with him that he comes down from the tree. And I just f- imagine, I don't know if you read the Bible this, bo- this way, but I just imagine when I'm reading that story, the conversations they had over dinner. Like, so Zacchaeus, tell me what you think the meaning of life is. Seems like you're just building an empire. You have so much wealth and so much money, but are you really happy? And Zacchaeus is like, oh, I could buy anything I want. I can have anything. And he's like, yeah, but aren't you lonely? Don't you just feel like there's something missing? You know, it's interesting because at the end of one dinner, Zacchaeus says, I'm willing to give away everything and follow him. And not just that, but his entire family is saved because of one man's decision. What if I could tell you that when Jesus wasn't preaching in the synagogues to save the world, he was saving the world one meal at a time? What if we can make a difference today in our neighborhoods, our communities, What if we can make a difference in our church? What if we can make a difference if we just invited people into our homes and shared a meal together? I think it's so interesting. Even Jesus was a carpenter. He literally created tables. He's he's carving the wood and saying, wow, this is going to be the centerpiece of family. 
this is going to be, this tool that I'm creating right now is going to bridge families together. I just, I can't stop but think about, wow, how profound that is. That What if we change the centerpieces of our homes to not be our entertainment consoles, but we went back to reclaiming the table? To say that, let's just disconnect from our devices, let's just be with one another, let's dine together, let's break bread together, gluten-free, of course. Amen, I, I see you, I see you, I see your hand, I see your, I'm sorry, I'm having way too much fun up here, okay. Get back into professionalism, okay. But let's, let's get back to this place of sharing meals together and fellowshipping. You know, I have an interesting perspective in this conversation, and, and here's why. I graduated high school 10 years ago, okay, and, and here's the, the, the thing about when I was in high school, I grew up with phones and without phones, so I remember a time where you go outside and you play soccer and you skateboard and you are convinced like me that there are dinosaur fossils in your backyard. And so you dig holes in the fields behind your house. Convinced, I, I told my dad to come with me and he came and I, there was this rock and I was swore that it was a dinosaur's foot. And uh, I'm still convinced, I really am. They built houses over it where, where it's a lost cause. There's no dinosaurs, I guess, in Marietta anymore. But I was convinced that this is what life was about, was personal face-to-face -face interactions that when the street lights came on, you pack up everything that you had outside and you come into the house and there's a hot meal on the table and you sit together as a family and you fellowship. The average statistic is that before iPhone came out in 2005 and before YouTube was established in 2007, families would spend 90 minutes together sharing a meal. Do you know what the average time is for families now that we have Netflix and VR and Amazon Prime and Disney Plus? Oh my gosh, Disney Plus is amazing, by the way. And, and all these things, the average family spends 13 minutes together having dinner. And I would even be convinced that those 13 minutes are not even quality time. It's, it's like me and my wife, we, we have a table, but it's in the other room because we couldn't fit it in our kitchen. So we have this like bar top with these like stools. And so we sit uh, on this marble counter and we cock our heads to the side and we watch our favorite shows on Netflix and, and, and uh, Disney Plus as we shovel our faces with food, missing that we're actually missing out on one of the ancient practices of what Jesus did which was saving the world one meal at a time. And I'm realizing more and more the importance of this. I mean, if you go and you think about Zacchaeus, right? We just talked about Zacchaeus for a minute and how you know, Jesus saved his life. Imagine today if you go into, I don't know, all the teenagers are in here probably working coffee shops, okay? So let's just say you go into work at your coffee shop, right? And, uh, and Frank comes up to you and he goes, guys, I'm selling my house. Today's my last day at work. And you go, why are you, did you get a new job? Are you moving? Oh, no, 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 I'm not moving. I met this guy named Jesus. And he told me if I wanted to be saved, I had to sell my home and all of my possessions. And I just, I had to let go of everything and lose myself in order to find myself. So I'm doing it. You would tell him that's a cult. Don't do that. 
That guy's scary. Block him on all devices. Where's his house? We're gonna go, we're gonna call the police, right? You would not trust your friend to follow Jesus, right? Because it is so unheard of. But Jesus had something about those fiery eyes of radical grace that when he would sit with you at the table, he would look into the epitome of your soul and show you that there's something broken. There is something missing without family. There is something missing without him. See, the world today, whether you're Christian or post-Christian, whether you believe in God or not, people recognize there is brokenness within all of us. They call it meditation and yoga. We call it prayer. They call it cleansing. We call it fasting, right? They, they call it the gym. We call it community and life groups and small groups. We are looking for the same thing, but we are missing the source, the person named Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And Jesus has something to show each of us, that there's something powerful about reclaiming the table and saying that as a family, we're gonna sit together, we're gonna break bread together, we're gonna eat together. The fourth thing that Jesus did, because I got off track, is this. Number four, be filled with the Holy Spirit. So let's recap, let's recap. Number one, listen to my teachings. Number two, practice what I do. Number three, be with one another. And number four, be filled with the Holy Spirit. As a family, we need to teach the teachings of Jesus, but not just teach them that this is what's right. We need to practice what's right. And not just practice what's right, but we need to be in a community that practices what's right. And we need to be a part of a community that believes that the Holy Spirit brings power, that the Holy Spirit is the same Spirit who raised Christ from the dead. And if we have him, we have access to joy and peace and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness. We have the fruits of the Spirit. We have everything that we need. So we need to recenter again. We need to be a family that sits together, shares meals together, fellowships. There's this, um, there's this great book by Dave Ferguson. And he's the author of Hero Maker, probably like one of the most under the radar, um, like greatest evangelists, I think, that has planted thousands of churches around the globe. And he wrote this other book about sharing a meal together with your neighborhood. And um, I think the book is called Sharing a Meal with Jesus. And in this book, um, he talks about that what would happen if you just said to everyone in your neighborhood, and I live in Harveston, okay, so what if I just went to Harveston and you went to your neighborhoods and we just knocked on people's doors or put something in their mailboxes, I know it's a little bit intrusive, but just follow me for a second, okay, and you and said, hey, everyone, we're new on the block or we've been here for a while and we haven't met everyone, uh, we just want to open up our homes on Sunday, the weekend after, you know, Valentine's Day, okay, and we're gonna just say, come on over between this time and this time, and we're gonna have food. And you opened up your home to people, and you just allowed people to come if they want to, and, and let's just say everyone showed up. And they had such an amazing time that they decided, let's do this again, and I'll reach out at my house to the neighbors that you can't reach, and we'll do it again in my home. And what would happen if our neighborhoods just began to share meals together? with everyone, and the reach went farther than you and I could go. But when we share meals together, we're not trying to convert people or get people to just come to our church or on a sin hunt to change them, but we simply just opened up the castles of our homes, and we sat down and we shared meals together, and we looked people in the eyes, and we said, tell me more about that. You said that your husband died. How have you been doing? You said that your kids are, are struggling right now. Tell me more. Listen, you do not have to be answer experts. You just have to be great responders of questions. 
just ask questions. Just continue to ask questions. At the end of, of an hour of, of sharing a meal with people, they're going to say, this is the best conversation I've ever had. You're like, great, I never talked. I just let you talk the entire time. But the value in this is this, is that people might not come into our church to hear about Jesus, but they'll come to your dinner table. And if they come to your dinner table, the, the, the point of sharing a meal together is this, guys. No matter if you're black or white or Hispanic or Asian or Mexican, or no matter if you are liberal or conservative or gay or straight, no matter if you're agnostic or Buddhist or, or, um, or atheist or Christian or post-Christian, no matter what your theology or your beliefs are, we can come together to say we can share a meal together. And through sharing a meal together, it's powerful how people will open up over a meal, especially if we show great hospitality. I, I've been reading this, uh, this other book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key by uh, Rosea uh, Butterfield. And she, she talks about um, that there's, there's, there's something that happens when you open up your homes, that hospitality is, is not just a gift for some people to practice, it's a commandment from Jesus. So if you think you're not a cook, can you just learn one meal? Like one vegan dish, everyone will be so pleased with you. I believe that you are talented enough to do that, okay? Learn one meal, practice that meal, and then start inviting people into your homes, okay? They may not be followers of Jesus, but I'm, I'm just convinced that God's radical grace, God's love for them will radically change their lives through the way that you minister to the needs of the people in your neighborhood. I mean, I think the problem, the, really the problem with all of this is that a lot of us were like, oh man, I don't want to open my home to my neighbors though, Pastor James. Like, I got some jacked up neighbors, okay? But what if we just changed our thought process about that and we just thought, maybe God put me in this neighborhood for a reason. Maybe God knew, wow, you come from a broken family and they are obviously a broken family. But I restored your brokenness. What if I took your testimony and I connected it with this broken family? And what if I did that through the sharing of a meal at a table? What would that do for your children if they just knew that a common practice is we always have strangers in our homes? But can I share something really interesting as I've been reading about research from Barna Group I learned this is that every generation has a problem with being with people who think differently than them. Does that sound like Northern America? If you vote differently than me, if you are Buddhist and I'm a Christian, um, if, if you are practicing homosexuality and I'm against all of that kind of, whatever the, the case may be, we have a problem sharing a meal or spending time or God forbid opening our doors to our homes with those kind of people. We sound very pharisaical. But you know, the interesting thing about Generation Z, the generation that was born between 1996 to current, the next generation, the youth that is in the room across the way, because of social media, yes, they're the most isolated, but they're the most connected generation that's ever lived. And they have friends that live in different countries. They have friends who are different colors of skin. They have friends who believe what they believe and don't believe what they believe. I believe that the next generation will be the greatest evangelist that ever lived. And I think that that's one thing that we can learn 
as an older generation from the younger generation. I think it's actually us that need to have a Jesus moment of realizing my kids aren't gonna be the ones uncomfortable if strangers come into my homes, it might be me. But at the end of the day, God calls us to love our neighbors. That is not a nebulous term for somebody who lives in Africa. That is for your neighbors, your literal neighbors next door to you. Open up your homes again. Let's be the church. Let's be people who meet the needs of our neighborhoods. Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to fellowship, and to prayer. They shared meals together and everything they had, and the church grew daily in numbers. If we would just share what we have with people, if we would just open our homes, if we would just extend an invite to a brother or sister in the faith of community, even if they don't live like we do, I think that we would see radical change in our city. Matthew chapter nine, verse 10 says this, when Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors, which by the way, were the most hated group of people, the, the Jesus went for the most um, controversial group to have dinner with him. And sinners, I love that they just call them, and sinners, they weren't like, I don't know, something else, came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples in private, well, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call this, uh, the righteous, but sinners. I love the way the NLT writes it. Check this out. For I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. Your neighbors, the people in our neighborhoods, the people that are supposed to be a part of our family, some people won't come to church because they, they just, oh, the church will burn down if I come. I'll get escorted out. I'm known in this city. But you open up your homes to them. You invite them to, to have a seat at the table. It's amazing what will happen, the change that will take place. We need to reclaim the table. Everybody shout, reclaim the table. No more sitting on the couch eating dinner while numbing out watching Netflix. No more nuking cold meals in the microwave because we decided to eat at different times because it was convenient for us. No more picking up fast food by ordering through Grubhub or just stuffing through a drive-thru and eating it in your driveway. Instead, what if the family, what if we as a family prepared dinner together? What if our children were the ones who set the table? What if just for one hour we put away our stinking devices and churned off the television and intentionally sat together as a family, prayed, broke bread, gluten-free of course, fellowshiped and wrapped up our time together by reading maybe a Proverbs or a story of Jesus? What if no matter how stressful our day was at work, we didn't depend on our devices to find escape? We didn't watch the 15th season 15th times in a row of Friends but instead, we sat together as a family. We knew at six o'clock tonight, no matter how bad my day is, I have my family to count on. And we can come together with the centerpiece being the table. As a family, to be intentional, to have a face-to-face -face personal interaction. Parents, dads, what would this do for your son 
If your son suddenly said at the table, I had a really hard day at school. What would happen if you put your fork down, you leaned over, reached over, put your hand on his shoulder, and prayed with your son for the first time? How would that radically transform his thoughts about family and about being a disciple of Jesus? According to the National Center on Addiction and Substance Abuse of, by Columbia, Columbia University, kids and teens who share family dinners three or more times a week are less likely to be overweight, are more likely to eat healthy foods, especially if you have vegetables, they think you're good cooks, perform better academically, are less likely to engage in risky behaviors such as drugs, alcohol, and sexual activity, and have better relationships with their parents. It is important that we deepen our connection together. Do I really need to say anything else about the importance of sharing meals together? If we would just get back to this focus of saying, hey, look, Jesus practiced this 2,000 years ago, and he was putting in motion something that he did. We talk about doing the things that Jesus did, healing the sick, uh, raising the dead, you know, casting out demons. Well, I would say also a part of healing is sharing a meal together. I would say some people won't let you pray for them, but they will certainly let you pray over the meal and share a meal together. And I, I think it's so surprising because my wife, um, you know, she, she works in, uh, in, in the beauty industry and, and we, uh, we sometimes we open our homes to people who are like, man, I've never had dinner with a pastor before. They're like, I was like really scared. I was afraid that you were gonna like Bible thump and like brimstone me and like tell me that like I'm, I'm doomed for hell. It's interesting how we can actually talk and never even bring up Jesus one time and the healing that that brings for someone to know that you're a safe person, that you don't have hidden motives or agendas, but instead we just looked them in the eye and we said, what are your needs, how can I meet them? What if we became that family? What if we became known as that church? What if we began to teach and practice and fellowship and pray together as a family? On the back of your bulletin, I wanna give you these, uh, these four statistics or, or, or points for influencing your child's spiritual formation. There's a pen in front of your chair if you need it. Um, number one, the person who is guaranteed to influence a child's spiritual formation the most is family, which I thought was interesting because I think a lot of times we just bank that the church is going to raise our children to be followers of Jesus. But actually, if a small group leader, and some of my favorite small group leaders are in this room right now, you might, on average, that small group leader might spend three hours a week with your son or daughter but you have on average 21 hours a week. Imagine the, the shift of what that would bring. Do you know what, uh, anyone, any, any math, people good with math in here? Do you know what uh, 21 times 52 weeks in a year equals? Any? You say four? <laughs> oh, you said no, okay. 1,092 hours. Okay, so. As a parent, you have 1,092 hours a year, 1,092 shots to make an impact on your son or daughter. That sounds, in theory, like a, long, a lot of time, but then you take into consideration their friends, school, your work, your personal life, um, other uh, activities outside, maybe they get sick, maybe you have a teenager who just isolates, which is all of our teenagers, right? And, and they're wanting to be on their own, your time with them is becoming less and less 
and less. And you know what the issue seems to be is that a lot of us can't seem to bridge the gap between the teachings that we hear in church and instilling those practices in our homes. And I wanna challenge you with this. What Jesus did was he said, listen to my teachings, practice those teachings, be in communities that practice those teachings and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And we can do all four of those things in our homes. And we could raise up the next generation that will go farther than we will ever go. The second group that has the most influence is the church. It was a close tie. It was 98% is parents, 96% is the church. The third group that influences your children today is their friends, their friends outside of church. And number four, fourth place, came in as school. And the last place came in as culture, which I would equate to social media and things that they're watching on television. Here's my point. We can't depend on somebody else to raise our children in the way that they should go. If we wanna level up our families, we as parents have to do more than just teach practices like patience and telling the truth. We have to open up discussions and I believe that the best place to do that is around the table. Your bulletins that you get every single week, maybe take those bulletins on, with those questions on the back, bring them home, and then just talk about them after dinner. I think we could do that. Is that a low enough hanging fruit that we could do that together as a church? Okay. So some of you might have seen this before or heard of it. There's, a, there's a, an evangelist. His name is uh, Brad uh, Janowski. No, it's not Janowski. Forget it. I, I lost his name. Okay. He wrote this book, though. It's called um, Seeing the Beauty of the Gospel. And, um, and in this book, he, he gives this analogy about the story of humanity being bridged together back with Abba Father. And I wanted to uh, show this, and let me move this for you, because I didn't do that last service. So some of us may think of Abba Father, and we have this, um, this perspective that, oh, man, that just doesn't sound good to me. Maybe you had a dad or a father who was absent or wasn't there in your life, and maybe it's just a touchy subject. But you know, religion will, will, will teach you this, and here's where I was at in my, in my walk with Jesus for many years before I had a radical change, is that I believe that in the beginning, God who is perfect, God who is true, God who is constant, who was and is and is to come, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. And on the sixth day, he created man to be in his image. And he placed him in the garden to have a personal face-to-face -face interaction with him that no matter how busy their day was, they could always come together. There was no separation between them. There was no sin. There was no need for grace because there was no sin. God was constantly having a relationship that looking him in the eyes, they talked together. But eventually one day, man sinned and turned his back on God. And because God is truth, because God is pure, because God is righteous, I used to think that God turned his back on man. And as a result, man has been trying to win God's affection. God has been turning his back away and man has been trying to turn his face back to him by doing good things. But can I tell you that that is not the good news? 
Can I start this story over again? In the beginning, God who is perfect, God who is constant, God who will always be. God created the heavens and the earth, and on the sixth day, he created man in his image, in his likeness, to bring him glory, that they would have a relationship together. And one day, the serpent tricked the woman, and the woman ate of the fruit and gave it to Adam, and Adam sinned, and because of shame, turned his back on God. But it didn't stop there. In fact, God came looking for man and confronted him and had a conversation with him. But because of shame, man turned his back again on God. And so God was not pleased with this, but God was not willing to be separated. So God said, I'm going to send you fathers. I'm gonna send you Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I'm gonna send you these men who will hopefully lead the children another generation back to my heart. But man despised the teachings of the fathers and they started to worship idols. And man churned its back on God. But God said, I'm still not done pursuing them because I'm a father who loves them. So I'm gonna send them prophets. I'm gonna send them fathers, I'm gonna send them prophets, I'm gonna send them whatever it takes because I want them, because he wanted us. But man despised the prophets and once again churned its back on God. And there was a disconnect and there was shame and there was separation. For 400 years God was silent between Malachi and Matthew. Then God in heaven said, you know what, maybe what I need to do is I need to send myself. And so God in the form of Jesus came down from heaven on high and came down in the form of man where man didn't recognize and didn't have the opportunity to turn its back on him. He came in the form of Jesus and he made these tables and he would sit down and one meal at a time was saving the world showing them that there is something that you are missing. Can I tell you, it's not money. It's not materialistic things. It's not the achievements or the awards. What you are looking for is me. And the good news, the good news for you today is this, that no matter how many times you churn your back on God. Your father is zealously in love with you and he will pursue you every single time, no matter what the mistake is, no matter how far you go or how far you run. He loves you. He's crazy about you. He says, I would go to the ends of the earth. I would go to the cross a thousand times for you. Don't you realize it? Don't you recognize it? Your God, your Father is passionately pursuing you. There's no reason to run. There's no reason to have shame and separation because when we turn our backs on him, he keeps on coming, saying, come to my table. Come and sit with me. Don't push yourself away from me. I want to dine with you. I wanna prepare a table before you in the presence of your enemies. I wanna fill your cup until it overflows.